Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning into Business Insights, a podcast series brought to you by Annex Business Media and MNP, one of Canada's leading national consulting firms. My name is Paul Grossinger, and I am the Director of Content at Annex Business Media, Canada's largest B2B media company. Today, I am honored to speak with Cliff Trollope and Philip Racco from MNP, who will be sharing their thoughts on risk preparedness, the importance of business continuity, and what the COVID-19 pandemic taught companies about planning for the future. Cliff and Philip, welcome to Business Insights. Um, really looking forward to this chat. We're going to uh, focus on risk preparedness and uh, business continuity, two themes that I think are close to your work and your heart these days. And so, uh, Cliff, we'll start with you. If you could just introduce yourself and let us know what you do at MNP. Yes, my name is Cliff Trollope. I'm a, a partner at the firm and I lead our national business resilience practice. So it's a consulting practice that does business continuity, crisis management, uh, IT disaster recovery, emergency preparedness with all kinds of clients from coast to coast, every industry you can think of. And we've been very busy since, uh, since COVID. So my name is Phil Rackle. I'm a senior manager. I work with uh, I work with Cliff in our business resilience practice. Um, the other part of the uh, our broader um, risk practice that I work in uh, has more to do with more the business side of risk. So the enterprise risk management or operational risk management side of things. Um, so going through that, we get to do risk assessments with organizations in a bunch of different ways. So beyond just the operational um, resilience side of things, we also bring it out more into human resource risk, strategic risk, all those different types of things. So it gives us a nice holistic view of things. Great. Um, before we get into like the survey results and, and what Canadian businesses are feeling about their business these days, Cliff, we'll throw it to you. Like looking back in terms of last February and March, was this something that um, you were already talking to clients about before March hit and, uh, the whole lockdown happened and where we are today? So, Paul, I, I wish I could say I anticipated this and uh, went around to everyone in January and February to say, get ready for a disruption like you've never seen before. Uh, that, that, that was not the case. Um, what I think, there's, there's a couple things I think we can share uh, with our, our own COVID experience work, working through. Um, Number one, even, even places that had really robust programs and plans in place, well-developed, exercised, trained, um, I don't think anyone was really ready for this specific one, uh, and that's okay. We found that those organizations who were prepared to a degree uh, did better, had less bumps, uh, but then a good organization was able to, to make it up on the fly if they had good systems and processes in place. The interesting thing is, uh, I was just talking to a client about this about an hour ago. Uh, while we say it's a, it's a, it was a pandemic that, that caused the disruption, um, a traditional pandemic plan back in the day, you were looking at we could be uh, down some people people will be sick or people will be at home looking after those. Uh, what transpired was really kind of a, a, a classic business continuity event in that we can't go work where we normally work. It was kind of like a, the largest loss of building plan you could ever have. Because by and large, people had their same staff. Uh, they were hoping that they could pivot their IT systems and their IT system stayed robust, but it really was a, it was a classic sort of business continuity incident internally. 
and a challenge for the executive level to manage the crisis. So a crisis management at, at the top. And the last learning I'll, I'll share. So we, we didn't see it coming. Um, uh, and, and even if you did say there's going to be a disruption, who knew that uh, we would be locked down and borders would be closed and, and all of those. One of the things we did learn, we, we, we've rejigged a lot of how we do stuff, not the process, but what our plans look like. One of the things that we learned was the importance of having really good process for managing a crisis at the executive level, C-suite. And to a degree, boards as well, uh, because when you're dealing with the unknown, you need the process and structure to manage the crisis, um, which is which is the important part. So oddly, you can't say this is not a not across the board, but organizations who had a good crisis management program and maybe soft on the business continuity side we're able to adjust, make up some business continuity stuff and get through. If you had pretty good business continuity plans, but your executive level wasn't ready to manage the wider crisis, external stakeholders, make sound and timely decisions, all of those things, it was more of a challenge. I see. Um, and Philip, I'll throw this question to you just as a follow-up. So um, we're a year in, um, what kind of conversations were you having with clients last March or April or May? Were they calling you in a panic saying, what do I do? Or did they say, Hey, let's hit the green light and, and go into our, our uh, business continuity plan. Yeah. So there's a few interesting things, uh, just to kind of build off what Cliff was mentioning there. So, uh, the first one is just serendipitously the way that things happened in March, Cliff and I were actually running a crisis management plan exercise in the beginning of March. So, uh, and through conversations with the client, we had come up with a scenario uh, in February. It was uh, late January and February as we were going through our, our planning process for the exercise. Uh, and then we did a pretty hard pivot um, as through late January and into February, the news of the potential pandemic or the potential issue that was, uh, that was arriving on our shores uh, kind of came up. So we actually ran through uh, an exercise uh, you know, in that, that first week of March. So, you know, second week of March, everybody had to be locked down. So it was a little bit interesting with that. So um, that's just an example of some of the conversations we were having with clients. What does this, does this necessarily mean? How do we want to go through things? And what Cliff was mentioning there, particularly at the executive level, lots of organizations were thinking about how they could, could transition, but managing that message from the, from the executive level and making sure that there was that good strategic oversight was a key piece that we were having lots of conversations with. Um, and then the other thing that I'd mentioned, and this was more in the April and May timeframe, um, is that we uh, continued to be advisors, but also advisors um, in kind of an agile way. So I know uh, both Cliff and myself, Cliff, a few more organizations than I did, um, but we were actually, um, you know, external advisors sitting on a few of our clients' actual crisis management response uh, teams. Uh, so meeting with them regularly, being part of their regular response cycle, advising them as they go. Um, so that was a little bit of an interesting lesson learned for, for us. Again, Cliff has a bit more of experience on the practical side than I do, but you know, it was an actual practical application of a bunch of the planning that we had helped them do. Uh, and the interesting piece about doing that is by doing it with a bunch of different clients at the same time, because it was such a regional and global issue, as opposed to one person that we might be advising because they lost the building. Uh, we were actually pulling lessons learned from different clients to each other, right? So it was almost there were collective learnings that everybody was benefiting from 
by having, you know, somebody sitting on a few different crisis <coughs> management teams at the same time. That's kind of what comes to mind about some of the things we were talking to them about. Um, how do we maintain a cycle, having that good response cycle in place, um, and having good vertical and horizontal flow of information. Uh, and again, if you can communicate, uh, you can get through anything, get the right people in the room um, to be able to make a choice. And over the years, I realized that emergency management plans and disaster recovery plans are, are a must. And I'm, and, and I'm sure you didn't want to be to those clients who didn't have these plans. I told you so, right? Because to this scale, no one thought to be the scale. But um, I guess, Cliff, does this prove that preparedness matters? <laughs> uh, I, I think absolutely. Preparedness matters because we've been, it's funny because as we roll out of through the summer, we started to be doing a lot of post-COVID reviews. So yes, preparedness matters. And those who weren't as prepared as they would have liked to have been and realized a little bit later uh, said, Let, let's not let this happen again, number one, but let's capture the lessons learned from COVID for preparedness right. um, to, to go. The other interesting thing to sort of follow on something Phil said, you know, when we were working with the clients and, and I was doing a presentation, probably in May or so, uh, about some of the big things. And, and one of the lessons we kind of got was, uh, number one was be able to execute on the fundamentals of good response, the fundamentals of emergency management, like execute on the problem is complex enough. The, the, the process to solve it can't be complex. So you have to execute on the fundamentals. But the other thing that I think is key is, and this really showed because of the size and scope and complexity of, of COVID and had touched everybody, uh, you really need to know your stakeholders and you absolutely need to know your risks because there was organizations who themselves might've been disrupted, got themselves going, but their supply chain is disrupted. They had, they had risks in their supply chain. They have risks with people. It was, you really needed to know your risks to your specific organization and, uh, and, and think broad with your risks. Think, think broad. And the other thing we were advising very early on is no one knew what the next one's going to be is just do some good what if planning. Yeah, we're going now. What if key supplier doesn't come back? What if borders don't open, don't open when we thought they would? Um, and, and always be, it was kind of like a constant risk, ongoing assessment of continuity of operation risks, uh, doing some what if planning so you're, you're not caught cold. And uh, in the engagement with your stakeholders, like you, you, the, the communication and, and management with your uh, external and internal stakeholders was uh, proved to be critical. For sure. And I guess, um, Philip, the whole idea of agility and communication, I think you both touched upon that, right? And I guess for a lot of companies that might not have had a plan of anything, is communication where you start a lot of that process to get prepared? Yeah, absolutely. So the one thing, and I just want to latch on to uh, something that, that both Cliff and yourself uh, and you mentioned, Paul, is, um, you know, preparedness is key. Preparedness is important, but preparedness is important in order to be able to respond. But what we've noticed that a lot of people have done in order to prepare is also just good business fundamentals, right? Like to do, if you were to just do good business fundamentals, it helps you in regular operations as well as when you have to respond being having flexibility for your people to be able to uh, work in different ways right automations and certain types of processes 
you know, maybe moving from paper to a DocuSign or a, a, a virtual environment. All those things are probably good improvements that an organization, organization can make anyway. And to your point about communications, that is fundamental. If people take anything else away from this, it just proves that there really it can be distilled down into two things. Let's make sure that everybody has an understanding about roles, responsibilities, and authorities, because uh, authorities and accountabilities are a key point of this, right? Who can make a call on certain things, who is responsible for certain aspects. So that's number one. Uh, and then number two, um, how do we actually communicate with each other? And if you can make sure that those things, and again, they'd be good in uh, business as usual, but also uh, particularly when you're responding to an event, um, if you can communicate, you can solve any problem. Uh, it's about getting the right people in the room and being able to actually look at the information, uh, take it in, analyze it, and communicate it out. Um, and this brings a, a specific question on the survey. The question was, overall, how prepared is your business for future challenges? In the first survey we did, which was pre-COVID, 40% said they felt well-prepared or better, right? In the second survey, that jumped to 54%. It felt well-prepared. Philip, are you surprised that that jump wasn't bigger? Uh, I'm not surprised that the jump wasn't bigger. I'm encouraged by the jump. But again, it's responding to a survey. So, you know, if we want to go for do sure. some audits, we want to go do yeah. some audits for people afterwards, we can go do that to actually yeah. <laughs> uh, validate it. But uh, to, in all seriousness, um, I think that it did two things. So one, I think that certain people looked at it and saw it as an improvement, right? An opportunity to improve, but it also, or that their abilities improved, but they also, um, some people might actually be discounting themselves a little bit about how they responded. So, you know, the, some people are just generally cautious and are a little bit more uh, maybe humbled by the situation. So I'm encouraged to see a 14 point uh, bump. Um, but, you know, we also have to think about who is maybe selling themselves a little bit short because they're not appreciating how much they were able to respond. Cliff, want to comment on that question at all? I, I just want to talk because it talks about preparedness. Uh, I wish I could give you the list of uh, people who we worked with who were like previous clients who said, so glad we had the plans in place. We pulled out our business continuity plans. The exercises, I had two clients in particular. One said, we weren't quite finished our plan at the detailed level. We did the crates. But remember, we did that exercise. And it was an exercise with a completely different scenario. But they leveraged that. And then one, one of the group, a financial institution I was working with, like Phil had mentioned, with the kind of ongoing coaching. And in the very early going, they weren't sure, should they be activating? Shouldn't they be activating? And when I did their exercise with them last summer, so a few months before, one of the messages I wanted to leave with them, I said, if you're not sure, activate, go big early and pair back. Don't wait till the crisis has evolved. And, uh, and it was one of their senior people said, you know, we're thinking about that. And we said, remember that guy came from Toronto and he said, go big early. Why, why don't we give that a shot? Point being, uh, don't undersell the preparedness because those people hit it with a degree of comfort as well. You know, brought out our plans, knew the call list, knew our stakeholders, and they were good. Um, to, to Phil's point about the preparedness, I, I agree exactly. But I think the other thing that you'll see is that uh, like some after they see it, and I, I noticed on what you sent us uh, indicated that they were less prepared. And I think that's because they thought they were pretty good. And then they saw what happened and they said, no, we're not as prepared as we thought. And we're not nearly where we want to be. And we need to get to work. For sure. And now, now is my follow-up question. 22% in the second survey said they weren't not well prepared, 
But in the first survey, only 8% said they're not well prepared. So I was a bit uh, shocked at that number too. Well, but it also, so I, I, and I agree. And that's kind of where I was going with this in my head is, you know, some people, it's a validation exercise for them. Um, but what I would say is a key part of preparedness is, you know, the, a, a plan is a piece of paper, right? Or anything that you put down as a piece of paper. When in the absence of an event, that's why we run through things like exercises, right? To be able to, as best as possible, test certain things. You always got to start your exercise by setting certain objectives. Do we want to test how well we communicate? Do we want to make sure that we can understand X, Y, Z? So that's why exercises are so important. Um, And they're also great to Cliff's point about, you know, running certain scenarios, right? If you do a scenario analysis about certain things, certain stresses that might happen on your supply chain, as an example. Um, So I definitely think, uh, I definitely think that is something. But the only other piece that I'll mention is, um, because what you mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, Paul, about Um, the whole aspect of uh, people looking at this and seeing those two numbers. Um, And Cliff mentioned this a little bit earlier. We tell everybody, whether you get us to do it, you do it internally, whatever. This has been uh, an event like none of us will ever, hopefully, knock on wood, experience again. So if you feel that either you uh, are more prepared than you previously thought or, or less prepared, capture those lessons. Do a COVID response review in one way or another. And you just got to answer three questions. What worked? What didn't work? Like, what, what do we start doing, stop doing, keep doing, right? And if you can do that, hopefully we can get uh, that 54% to be 75% uh, and that 22% to be a heck of a lot lower. Right. right, for sure. Cliff, I'll point this question to you in terms of preparedness. When you deal with clients, you're dealing with a variety of people within their organization, whether it's IT or security or C-suite, right? Does a, uh, a pandemic like this, which we've never seen in our lifetime before, does this show that uh, preparedness does start from the top, from like a C-suite? Is that, is that where most companies are going to come out of this and say this is a, a C-suite issue and, and, uh, and sort of trickle that down to their staff? I, I think that the pandemic has raised the importance of uh, being prepared for something bad happening. Continuity of operation crisis has raised it certainly to the C-suite and to the board level. Okay. It, it's 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 raised it's raised the profile a, a, across the country when when we see it, and and you know I would never fault if you haven't been through a crisis, you haven't been really pushed as an organization. You don't know what you don't know. Uh, but now that people have gone through it and they said, now I know how it, uh, how it feels, what can go wrong. And I think we'll see a, it's kind of a change of mindset almost. I can remember years back, I was presenting to a, a group of very senior post-secondary uh, leaders about crisis management. And uh, it was in Western Canada. It was every university in Western Canada. And I remember saying afterward, and then we had discussions. I said, I could go around the room and point out the institutions who've had a real crisis at this level that they've had to deal with and those who haven't. Because the depth of discussion, the pointing to details was very different from those who've been through it than those who said, well, we've got a plan. We would just kind of do this. And they, they didn't. And those who've been through it said, no, nope, and you got to think about this. And then we struggled with this. Uh, very different. I see. And Phil, I'll just get your thoughts on this. Has the pandemic, I guess, uh, put the whole idea of risk on the on the table of the C-suite? I, I definitely think so. Um, one of the things, though, that I feel is a byproduct of this is the focus is obviously on quite a bit of continuity or resilience-based risks right now. 
Uh, and really, if you look at it, uh, people have to do it in order to be able to respond to the last 12 months, survive, all that good type of stuff. So this is not meant to be a criticism of everybody uh, or of anybody. But what has happened is there's been an emphasis for sure on risk. I would just encourage people to remember that while continuity risk, preparedness risk, overall resilience risk is obviously key, we can't get too myopic, right? We have to think about all the different types of things. What were the knock-on effects by, and this was actually going back to March and April, this was one of the interesting things. We have a whole bunch of organizations and a huge lesson learned for us because we've always said, yeah, work from home, viable strategy. What are the risks that we introduce by working from home? So what, you know, our, has our controls framework, the people that sit beside us, our good internal audit, internal control people, they were always kind of saying, okay, now that people are working from home, what are the privacy implications? What are the cyber implications? What are all these different types of things? So organizational resilience, lo seeing lots of people focus on that now, and that is great and necessary for survival, but let's not get too myopic and think about some of those other things that are still out there and still risks to the organization. Um, one of the questions we asked in both surveys was uh, what business initiatives and investments are you considering over the past 12 months? And some of the options were increase sales staff capabilities, introduce automation, develop new pro products, develop strategic alliance, and enter new markets. Cliff, I'll ask you, do any of those play a role in risk preparedness? Uh, I would put them to, they may be looking at that from a, and you can't say from them, from building a resiliency perspective, have a backup of a new market, have partnerships different, your supply chain different. Uh, so I would bucket it into a little bit like Phil said, we can't get myopic in the, in the just the resiliency risks when you, the continuity of operations risk, got to think of all of them. So yep. if people are looking at business risk, from that, what are you considering coming out? But also a lot of those things where people capitalizing on it, say, is this our time to, I hate to use the word, it's overused, pivot our business a bit. Do we find opportunity in this uh, from new markets, from new products, uh, from from those things? So it, it's, I think it's more of a, it's a risk discussion uh, focused on like pure biz, business risks. How do we, how do we, work through that. And Phil made a good point. We did, we can't be myopic. What we're living through here is, is a catastrophic hit to one type of risks, continuity of operation, resiliency risk. Right. If we go back to 2008, uh, continuity of operations wasn't an issue, but uh, there were financial risks being imposed on a lot. There's right. the ongoing, which, which goes to, uh, you know, know your risks, monitor them all the time, don't overcomplicate your monitoring and tracking of risks. Don't let it go stale and be ready to capitalize on, uh, on opportunities that uh, the situation unfolds or presents as well. And I keep going back to this concept about, and I know we're talking about preparedness, but my brain keeps going back to overall resilience, right? And resilience is more than just making sure that you have continuity of operations. But even if you distill it down to that, being a resilient organization means that your supply chain is diversified. Maybe that your markets are diversified, right? I think that one of the things that our profession uh, and, you know, Cliff and I have been talking about this over the last 12 months, we've always been kind of focused on a hazard risk, something that can put out a building or cause your data center to go down. But at the end of the day, and Cliff really uh, dug this out, the, that crisis management piece is really the key. Um, and when you think about the crises that can run into things, you can have human resource crises, right? Conduct and ethic risks um, that we've seen quite a bit of, particularly when it comes to even vaccines, right? 
when you have that situation and a board has to make a call, that is a resilience issue that they have to run into because it threatens the brand and viability potentially of an organization. So how are they, how is the board managing that crisis? When you tie it back to your supply chains, which we saw quite a bit in March and April, right? That is a resiliency issue. It's not business continuity insofar as classically losing a building, but it's responding to a crisis and being overall resilient. So I think all of these things have to do uh, to have to do with it. And the other one I just want to point out is RPA, robotic process automation. You mentioned it, huge thing. Lots of people are doing it. I think the pivot towards technology, someone like us who has the easy way to kind of just work in our basement if we need to, not every, not every organization has that opportunity. But if we do this and we are encouraging people to be a little bit more um, involved virtually, how can we potentially take some of those administrative tasks off their plate through things like RPA that might help us to um, you know, take advantages of some other value adds that might happen. So I think that when you talk about maybe it's less preparedness, maybe it's more about overall resilience. I think things like that can help an organization um, be a little bit more effective and therefore over, overall more resilient. Every company and every sector is different. A lot of our leaders are in, man in manufacturing and real estate and, and so forth. How, how do companies approach how to build a risk framework? Is it different now? What are the factors that they should consider? I know we talked about this through, like now you, you worry about resiliency and supply chain, but but Philip, uh, maybe you can just discuss some, like w one or two ways that a, a company could think about building a risk uh, and framework for themselves. Sure, so the first thing, and again, sound like a broken record, but encourage everybody to do, if you do not have a risk framework or you're looking to revamp it or, um, or, or whatnot, take the last 12 months, right? History can be an incredible teacher. You, it's not a predictor of the future, but it tells you where you've been, right? The scars that you have don't tell you where you're going. They tell you where you've been. So learn from them. Um, as much as possible, do a debrief on how your response to COVID well, uh, went. What worked, what didn't, what do we need to improve on or, or further expand on? And when you do that, you can better understand how did we analyze risk? How did we understand it? How did we communicate about it? So that's the first thing I'd encourage people to do. Do that little bit of a retrospective because that could be the basis for, uh, for your risk going forward. Um, and then the other thing I always encourage anybody to do uh, when they're put, trying to put together a risk framework is have a diversity of perspectives and opinions as much as humanly possible. Does it just need to be your senior leadership team that has input into it? No, get different opinions and even dissenting opinions because uh, minorities, they tell you, they either validate your opinion or they give you something that you don't have, might not have thought of. So as much as possible, get the different perspectives. Uh, and it doesn't have to be sophisticated, right? It does not have to be sophisticated. I think you mentioned it, Paul, too. And, and I know Cliff mentions this all the time. The plan is just the plan. Planning is more important. So have those conversations uh, and share the information and communicate. Because if you can do that, then it gives you a basis by which to, un to understand what can get in the way and what do we got to do about dealing with it. For sure. And um, Cliff, I'll let you chime in on this as well. But if you can talk about how to build a risk framework and also touch upon who owns that framework now. Okay. So the first one in it is the first sort of guiding principle. If somebody's starting cold is do not overcomplicate it and go through the standard process that is identify the risks that you could impact your business package them out and go broad. People, finance, strategic, operational, all those, identify the risks that are specific to your organization 
then assess those risks, have a simple way or one to five scoring for likelihood and impact. It's really like the fundamentals of building it, doing a risk assessment will, will let you know um, what you are. So identify the risks, assess the risks, analyze them, decide how you're going to treat them. Uh, but that's not quite enough. And this speaks to your point about uh, who, who, who should own it. Someone in the organization has to own it. Can be in the fine. It does matters less where it sits as long as there's one dog to kick and there's senior people support for it. Uh, because after you've identified and assessed your risk and say yes, we're risk aware, you need to be constantly moderate, uh, monitoring, updating, checking the controls. Are we reducing the risk? Are we living with the risk? Do we know what risks we have? to build that risk awareness that will inform strategic decisions. And then for any organization, once you have your risk assessment done and your framework, how you can manage it, um, uh, link it to your strategic plan. Make sure that your risks are linked to your business strategy and, and that, that should be done throughout the, throughout the process. Uh, and then they will start to see, I think, the value of having uh, a risk framework because it's to help inform decision making, make making risk informed business decisions. But you can't do that if you don't know what your risks are. All right. One thing to add to that too, that's a key point. Um, that is definitely a lesson that I've learned over the last little bit too. Lots of people are really good at the identification and the analysis piece, but there's a third step that everybody kind of doesn't talk about, which is which ones are okay, which ones are acceptable, and which ones do I have to do something about. If everything's a risk, nothing's a risk. If everything's a priority, nothing is a priority. So go through the assessment, but there's the concept of appetite and tolerance, right? You have to apply that lens to say, I'm okay with this risk where it is sitting, given my current context, given everything that we're doing. I mean, heck, in COVID, I was okay with going to the grocery store because it outweighed me having to starve, right? So what risk are we willing to accept? Because you have to be able to distill it down to action, to something that drives action. Because if you're not driving action, it's just a process that looks nice on a spreadsheet or in a software. In 20 or 30 seconds clip, what has this taught you about risk? It's, it's really back to what has taught me about risk is the importance of understanding your risks in a broad nature. Bill, do you wanna just end with something? I think the biggest thing it taught me is that risks are dynamic, right? The environment is dynamic. So risks are kind of, they're temporal, right? It depends on what situation you're currently in and it's going to change based on the information you have, um, what your own personal experience is, what your own business experience is, all those types of things. So that's the first thing um, that, it, uh, that it taught me. The second thing is that principles and fundamentals are a heck of a lot more important than absolutes and all this other stuff, right? So if you have a good, solid set of principles and people understand this, it's better than this massive checklist. Checklists are important. Right. I want the I want the the pilot to go through the checklist before he takes off. But what are the key principles? And if we can be, you know, have good foundational principles, there's a good understanding across different parts of the organization. That conversation then leads to uh, leads to things. And then the third thing is that um, there's opportunity. Right. We should all be. We should always consider the potential threat that risk might pose. But there was opportunity, uh, and I know Cliff said pivot, not a great term, obviously, sometimes we make fun of people sometimes for using that. But <laughs> when, you, when you think about it, there was opportunity in this. Lots of organizations pivoted quite well uh, and actually benefited from 
Um, you know, there's a lot of good technology, Canadian technology stories that uh, they did quite well during this because of how they were positioned. So it's not just about considering the negative. There's also the positive aspect of risk where opportunity might lie. It's interesting is uh, I was in a discussion last week with some folks and I think you mentioned, so the, 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 the COVID has been hit some industries and some people very hard and others have had business like they've never had. But all that's done is created different risks. I had a long discussion last week with someone who, who's not unlike ourselves, who said their risk now isn't revenue, isn't business, it's people. We're, we're going to, our people are going to tip over. So all of this, their, their good business has created a risk, a human resource risk around health and wellness, retention, all of those things, which, which talks to, I think Phil said something really good there. It's just how dynamic risk is. The last thing I'll share with you, and this is a, this is just something that we've seen and speaks to risk. It speaks to preparedness, but in some ways COVID has, has been a kind of shone a magnifying glass on the culture. I call it, it's like, it was like a culture amplifier. So if an organization going into a really hard time uh, was cohesive, communicated well, uh, was, was strong leadership, uh, engaged employees, the COVID experience has brought all that to the surface and they've done very well. Like they, they this shone a light on what we thought was a really good workplace culture of things. And then the opposite is true. If you were fragmented, confused, not slick as an operation going into COVID, uh, it shone the light and, and discovered all those cracks. Cliff and Philip, thanks so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed our conversation and I know our audience will find your business insights and experiences informative and useful. Fantastic, thanks Paul. Stay tuned for future episodes of Business Insights brought to you by MNP. Please check out mnpbusinessinsights.ca to listen to other episodes of our podcast and to learn more about the impact COVID-19 has had and is having on Canadian businesses from coast to coast.